0: Well, the clavenless weekend is almost upon us, and before the planet swirls down into a fathomless and unnatural 72-hour darkness that will make the damned denizens of hell wipe their flaming brows with gratitude that they haven't been condemned to remain on Earth, let's take a jolly look back at the days just past and review the events that make us all feel we're living in what used to be the greatest country ever to turn to ashes reeking with the fetid aroma of insanity and corruption. Over the last several days, the choice that has been set before us in the upcoming presidential election at last became clear, and the differences between the candidates were made manifest through their actions. Hillary, you'll remember, tripped climbing up a flight of stairs, causing some reporters to speculate that her pure hunger for power had turned her mind into a percolating worm-ridden soup no longer capable of controlling the actions of a body in which the soul had been eaten to nothing by greed and evil, leaving the flesh to begin the process of decay even before the onset of death. Donald Trump, meanwhile, tried to declare his economic policy for America's cities, but instead of saying cities, he accidentally uttered a rude expression for a woman's breasts, revealing that even in the midst of his speech, he was thinking back to those great days with Bill Clinton on convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein's jet nickname, the Lolita Express, when Trump and Bill could share a nice cold cocktail and a nice warm 15-year-old and joke about how funny it would be if Trump decided to run for president and destroy the Republican Party, leaving his Hillary Clinton a clear path to the White House and then prison. Meanwhile, during a conversation with reporters, Hillary accidentally referred to Trump as her husband, revealing that she was thinking about the same thing. Then, new Clinton emails were released, providing evidence that Hillary had sold government favors for cash, and Hillary reacted by sneaking up in back of the DNC worker who released the emails and shooting him twice, then dragging his body to a secluded location in a Washington, D.C. park, and burying it in a shallow grave, while Attorney General Loretta Lynch danced around the corpse with her arms flung to the sky as she shrieked a satanic incantation that conjured a demon from the flaming bowels of the earth who cast a curse of moral madness over the entire nation before returning to the Oval Office to finish his second term as president. Trump responded by putting on clown makeup and riding a unicycle in circles around his podium until he fell off the edge of the stage, leading CNN to produce a five-hour-long documentary questioning whether the businessman was as qualified as Mrs. Clinton, who had the experience, poise, and good judgment to shoot a man in the back and get away with it while simultaneously conjuring a demon. As Wolf Blitzer put it, quote, here's a woman who can really multitask, while Donald Trump can't even ride a damned unicycle. unquote. All in all, I think every patriotic American's heart can take encouragement from the fact that if the Clavenless weekend should indeed swallow us in near eternal darkness, it'll actually be a big improvement over the rest of the week. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. Uh, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think they've finally driven me insane. I think that's what's happened. I was reading this. I was thinking, who wrote this? Oh, no, it was me. <laughs> it has been a strange, strange week. I can only imagine how crazy the Clavenless weekend's going to be. Luckily, I won't be here because it's Clavenless. All right, we're going to have a lot to talk about. But, oh, boy, we've got we've got breaking news. A New York Times reporter said something true. And we're gonna Yes, we're going to get to it. I hope you'll be here because you only get the first 15 minutes of the show on Facebook Live, and then the party starts. That's when we're dancing, the singing, the girls come on. It's incredible. So you have to come to The Daily Wire, or you can download it on iTunes or SoundCloud, and then subscribe, and you can see the whole thing, plus get into the mailbag. We had a good mailbag yesterday. Some good questions, yes. And so you got to get in there if you're going to uh, ask your questions and find out the truth about everything. Uh, Also, I just want to reiterate that if you want a signed copy, a lot of people have been asking me for how to get their copies of The Great Good Thing, my memoir that is coming out. It's supposed to come out next month. It'll probably be available sooner than that. But if you pre-order The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ, you can send me the receipt by email at aclavin at dailywire.com. And I will use the address on the receipt to send you a signed sticker that you can put in the book. And there it is. And uh, just tell me the name you want me to sign. I'll usually do that with checks, but I'll do that with the book as well. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. I'm just riffing here. All right. So here's the thing. Something truly amazing happened. A New York Times reporter actually told the truth. And we're going to get to it in a second because first we have to talk about what's – we've got these dueling visions, basically, of the world, these dueling stories that come out. One is Donald Trump makes – This stupid comment about the Second Amendment. He basically says if Hillary gets in, she's going to appoint judges, we'll destroy the Second Amendment. Nothing you can do. Oh, but maybe if you're one of these Second Amendment people, you can do something. So he's just basically, basically, you know, I thought he should have come out and said, I'm really sorry. What I meant to say is kill her, kill her. I just want to. So everybody gets upset. Now, you know, a lot of people have talked about this, that there has been, I mean, especially during the George W. Bush presidency, there was a lot of talk about assassination. There was a movie that was made. It was called uh, Death of the President that predicted this. Uh, I think that was 2006. It came out it won awards in Europe. It was in festivals, and people gave it good reviews. I have to say, I have to say, to be absolutely fair, that Hillary Clinton did condemn that movie. She did say it was despicable and a terrible thing to do. And there was also nicholson Baker, who is a prominent literary novelist. He's one of those guys that nobody reads but people like me. He wrote a book called Checkpoint, in which they also discussed killing the president. I mean, these things were out there, and they was getting good reviews. And again, to be fair, the New York Times did call the book scummy. They really went after it. Uh, and it was scummy. I mean, that's <laughs> a terrible, you know, <laughs> these are sitting presidents. So, and, and so Hillary has has earned the right to strike back at Trump, which he did. So give us the Hillary cut there.
1: Let me say something about what I think is a critical difference between my opponent and myself. Words matter, my friends. And if you are running to be president or you are president of the United States, words can have tremendous consequences. Yesterday, we witnessed the latest in a long line of casual comments from Donald Trump that cross the line. His casual cruelty to a Gold Star family. His casual suggestion that more countries should have nuclear weapons. And now his casual inciting of violence. Every single one of these incidents shows us that Donald Trump simply does not have the temperament to be president and commander in chief of the United States.
0: Okay, so that's one side, and this is Hillary's campaign now. Donald Trump said something stupid. Never mind, you know, the last eight years, never mind my dishonesty, never mind my corruption, never mind everything else. Donald Trump said something stupid, and Donald Trump keeps giving her the material to run that campaign. So that's working out really well for her. The polls show it. But that's one side. That's one story. Okay. The other story is, of course, this these new emails that are released from Judicial Watch, which is this conservative watchdog group that just keeps filing FOIA reports. That's all they do: Freedom of Information Act reports, uh, requests. Give us these documents. Give us these documents. So this there's a, this is a double, not a triple whammy. It's certainly a double whammy. The emails come out and they show that if you gave money to the Clinton Foundation. You got access to the State Department through Hillary Clinton's aides. So Hillary Clinton is in; she's the Secretary of State. She made an agreement with Obama because Obama, remember, Obama is a, plays dirty pool. He, he is a he silences his critics. He intimidates people. He uses the IRS. He uses he's totally politicized the Justice Department. He's used the FCC. The, the a, a judge just struck down the FCC trying to take control of people's Wi-Fi. You know, I mean, Obama is a tough, tough Chicago Paul who is out to destroy his enemies and silence them. But, but he's not money corrupt. He's, he is not, you know, money corrupt is a very special thing. You have to really, really be a greedy, you know, uh, dirty person to be corrupt. Obama is an ideologue. So he made an agreement with Hillary Clinton. Yes, you can be secretary of state, but you've got to separate the Clinton Foundation, the slush fund, from your business at Secretary of State. Now these emails come out and this is why, this is why she had a private server. As I have been saying to you for over a year now, the real dirt is not whether she exposed some spy in Iran, though she might have, she might have done that, but the real (coughs) dirt is why did she do it in the first place? Why did she do it in the first place? We know it wasn't for convenience. We know it wasn't for all the reasons she said. It was to hide this pay for play arrangement that she had with donors. If you give her enough money through the Clinton Foundation, if you pay Bill enough to make a speech, if you pay her enough to make a speech, you got access. Plus, you know, not only that, these emails also show that the Department of Justice just turned a blind eye to this. They said, we don't have enough evidence. We don't have enough evidence to, you know, prosecute any of this business with the Clinton Foundation. So they are completely complicit in this. Plus, you know, even the Washington Post, which has been relentlessly anti-Trump, relentlessly one-sided, they ran a story reminding people—first of all, they pointed out that when Clinton was senator in New York, she promised that she was going to bring 200,000 jobs to New York— no way. Not even close. Not, I mean, hard to find any jobs that she brought to New York. New York. Upstate New York has really been in terrible shape. She did nothing. But in the article they mentioned almost offhandedly, in the Senate, Clinton cultivated a mutually beneficial relationship with Corning, an upstate manufacturer of glass and high-tech products. We all know Corning glassware. Through legislation and federal grants, she helped steer money to Corning to support its diesel emissions reduction technology. Corning employees have donated to Clinton's campaigns at a massive clip, and Corning's chief executive co-hosted a 2015 fundraiser for her. The company paid her $225,000. That's a little more than I get for a speech. In 2014, to speak to Corning executives, Corning also has given more than $100,000 to the Clinton Foundation. It's record show. She has been selling your government to people, okay? So, Ron Fournier, a reporter for the National Journal, used to be a big AP guy, he points out why this is a double whammy.
2: It was uh, people very close to the Clintons, uh, including a source who's been working with the Clintons for more than two decades, who told me the week that the New York Times exposed this this rogue server, uh, that what this was all about was the foundation, that, that the blurring the lines between their political and professional uh, uh... lives that's what was in the emails was to look for the pay-to-play this kind of uh... favor giving
3: is this story disturbing to you what we've we found out about this uh, back and forth between the foundation and the state department what should americans be concerned
2: because you, you don't want to have politicians who are uh, giving favors to donors uh... you know that's that's obviously an ethical breach plus we have the trust issue here uh, hillary clinton told us that all of her work-related email were turned over. This is yet another example where we're finding email that weren't turned over. Wait, why, to, I,
3: why, 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 why wasn't this one turned over? This is fairly significant, is it not?
2: Oh, very significant. We, we have found, you know, there's been dozens, maybe hundreds, that haven't been turned over among the 30,000 that she deleted. Uh, you know, through lawsuits and the FBI's investigation, we're uncovering emails that that yeah. should have been uncovered
0: and weren't. So. So she's corrupt twice, right? Not only is she influence peddling, she's influence peddling and she's dumping the emails. You know, this is, remember, she keeps saying, I've turned over everything, I've turned over everything. We're getting more and more They, you know, we're getting more and more of these things that she did not turn over. Okay, so these are the two stories that are running yesterday. According to the Media Research Center, which is a right-wing center, but— I, you know, I know these guys, they're just basically studying the media, the mainstream media is reporting on the percentage of, you know, who covers what. They're saying that this Trump gaffe, and that's what it was. He's, he's got this kind of offbeat sense of humor. He doesn't think, and he doesn't think before he talks. This got four times the coverage, four times the coverage of Hillary Clinton's emails. Here's Tim Graham on, uh, talking to Eric Bolling on Fox from MRC.
3: It's getting worse as we go along, and uh, in particular, CBS is really standing out here because they have 14 minutes on Trump to one on Hillary, so <laughs> they're really skewing the whole thing. But it, it just shows you a general election pattern that they always have, which is take whatever the gaffe is, like binders full of women, and completely exaggerate it and hyperinflate it. Uh, and With the Democrats, it's like, what story? Yeah, so do you find that it's um, consistent along all medium, in other words, broadcast medium versus network uh, and versus cable? Yeah, generally the pattern is, is the same all the way across. What's really interesting sometimes is when you think that newspapers are going to be more in-depth and offer you more on uh, some of these Hillary scandals, and then what you find when you go back and you look at it is, no. You know, for example, the networks totally jumped all over Kaiser Kahn's speech to the Democratic Convention. The networks ignored Patricia Smith. You look at the newspapers, you find the same thing.
0: Okay, so we're going to get to so Jeremy Peters, a New York Times reporter, actually spoke the truth, and this is very rare for New York Times because that's not what they're in the business of doing. But we're going to talk about that after the break. We're going to have to say goodbye to you at Facebook and at YouTube. Still, I think, yeah, but okay, so long. But come to the Daily Wire and hear the rest of the show. (laughs) <laughs> it just gets me so excited. I just wish we were facing the guns at uh, in the Crimea. I would just charge over the hill. All right. So, um, so let's take a look. The, uh, it's on the site of the Daily Wire, if you want to find the whole thing, a compilation of CNN basically just skewing the news for Hillary. So let's just play a couple of minutes of this because it really is funny.
1: Remember, Hillary Clinton has some vulnerabilities herself, even as she calls for criminal justice reform because of her support in the 1990s for anti crime legislation that ultimately helped contribute to this era of mass incarceration that she now uh, speaks out
3: uh, again. Uh, we just lost, uh, lost Brianna Keeler. <laughs>
1: <laughs> With some Trump supporters, um, let's play what they said. David Duke and people like that—they come out of out from under the rocks all the time around this time this year. It got nothing to do with Donald Trump. We're all Americans. I think we need to stop with all the racist stuff and the race being. Like me and my friend right here, we just met today. We was talking. You know, we got to stop with the racist stuff and, and this that. We all Americans, man. And nobody paying David Duke no mind. Um, clearly, <laughs> let, let me just yeah. be clear here. Obviously, the majority of Donald Trump supporters are not African American. I don't know yeah. how many African Americans were in that that building, but that is one uh, person that uh, we have chosen to cut that sound from. Uh. <laughs> The servers are no longer hooked up and working. I mean, if they are, they're with the FBI, and, and people know that they're not available to hack anymore. I mean, it's like Donald Trump saying, "Oh, you know, I hope Putin goes get, and gets in a 1985 DeLorean and goes and finds those 33,000 emails." I mean, it's absolutely it's ridiculous. Not like that at all. I'll tell it's you, not like that I'll tell all. you what scares me. What scares me is the fact that the emails are out there somewhere, probably, and that we could have a president that what? could be blackmailed what? over. Them. Wait, That's wait, wait, what concerns he, me. It's about our national, national security. No, hold on.
4: You can't just invent things.
3: You can't just invent. I'm not things. inventing anything. You just anything. invented I, an I mean, entire this is- thing. The FBI has already come out with a report on Hillary Clinton's emails. What you just said was an invented thing. There's no 33,000 emails. There are other work related emails that they did not produce to state and that we did not find elsewhere and that are now gone.
0: This thing goes on for ten minutes. I mean, it's ten minutes of this stuff, and it really is worth watching. It's just hilarious, and I love I love the woman who just disappears. We've lost the feed. Yeah. She was criticizing Hillary Clinton. You know, and it's like they come back, and there's just an empty space where the reporter used to be standing. <laughs> just the portable CNN trapdoor that comes along. All right. So, New York Times reporter Jeremy Peters. And I make fun of the New York Times because they're a bunch of lying dirtbags, but then <laughs> that's the only reason. You know, it's not because I don't like them, but Jer- New York Times reporter Jeremy Peters says this thing, which is an amazing, it's amazing twice, because it's absolutely true, and he doesn't mean it to be true. He's not intending to speak the truth, and he accidentally bumps it. It's like he bumps into reality in the dark. Listen to this.
4: One of the first things you need to recognize—that is, is we all need to recognize—is the way that there are two different media worlds right now. There is the way that conservatives and Republicans are getting their news, and then there is a way that the, the, the rest of the world is getting their news. And if you turn on Fox News, you scroll through the conservative blogosphere right now. What you will see are lead stories about this latest Clinton email flap. You turn on other media, and what you will see are stories about Donald Trump suggesting that. Second Amendment uh, f- uh, supporters take matters into their own hands. There are these two worlds that are coexisting, and they're never meeting. And so you have people who get their information from completely separate sources, and they kind of experience the election the way they want to experience it, and then they blame the other side for not covering it fairly enough. Now,
0: you got to note two things about what he just said. Okay, first, three things. One is it's true. Right-wing people are getting one set of the news, left-wing people are getting another set of the news. Two, he doesn't mean it to be a, a more, he means it to be, to sound as if he's being morally equivalent. Like it's just, you know, these two people who aren't seeing one another. But note the turn of phrase. The conservatives are getting the news one place and the rest of the world is getting it someplace else. The suggestion is, of course, that what conservatives are getting is totally false. He feels that this gaffe that Trump made is more important than the emails that reveal that the secretary of state was up for sale. Now, here's the thing about this. This is why this is important. If you think this doesn't affect you, if you think that as a conservative who gets conservative news, you are not being affected by this incredible wash of what the rest of the world is saying, you're wrong. This narrative is like a tide. It sweeps everybody away, including the people who are sort of trying to swim to shore, you know, looking for the truth. The people who are listening to me, who are listening to Ben, who are trying to find out what the Facts are, they are still awash in this narrative. Okay, you know I get letters sometimes when I talk about uh, God and the culture and uh, how how uh, throwing God out of the culture is like throwing away the cornerstone of the tower of Western civilization. And people will write to me, conservatives will write to me, and say, "Stop preaching to people. That's intrusive." See. You just think that's intrusive because you have been taught that the default position is atheism. You don't think it's intrusive when somebody says to you, when somebody leaves God out. When somebody leaves God out of the conversation, you don't think that you're being preached to, but you are. You think that's normal because you are swimming in that tide, and when I talk, I don't tell you to believe, I don't tell you to, you know, come to Jesus. That's not what I'm here to do, I'm just telling you the role that Christianity has played in the creation of the things you love best, like freedom and individuality. I'm telling you though, you know what how it has played into those things, and you think you're being preached to because you're swimming in the tide of default atheism. Let me show you, let me just show you. I wanted to talk about this yesterday. I didn't have time because of the mailbag. There was an article in The New York Times yesterday. It may have been, I mean, I, I thought it was, I, I was grateful for the comedy. I was grateful for the, for the found found laughter of New York Times coverage. So the New York Times knows that this email story is coming out to show that she is taking money. Hillary Clinton is taking money for government favors, taking money for all kinds. Remember, they they stole furniture from the White House when they left. These people are like white trash who just every time they see a dollar bill. I mean, talk about dragging a dollar bill through a you know a trailer park. That's the that's the Clintons. You know, they will chase a dollar bill right over a cliff. OK, so now, the New York Times is going to explain to you why this is true in an article that was headlined, When Her Family Needed Money, Hillary Clinton Faced Stark Choices. So you hear that, and what you're hearing is, when you're poor, you know, it sticks with you. It just it just changes you, you know? It changes you. Listen to this. I, I swear, I'm not making this up, OK? Losing the governor's race here in 1980 so shattered a young Bill Clinton that he couldn't face his supporters, so he sent his wife around to thank campaign workers instead. He later gathered with close friends for dinner, but quietly sulked, playing the country song, I don't know whether to kill myself or go bowling on the jukebox. If my voice cracks, it's just because I'm overwhelmed with emotion. But, But his wife, Hillary, had a more pressing concern money The ousted governor needed a job. The family needed a place to live. And moving out of the governor's mansion meant losing the help they had as they raised their nine-month-old daughter, Chelsea. They lost their nanny for crying out. The morning after the election, Hillary Clinton worked the phones from the mansion, calling wealthy friends and asking for help. Mr. Clinton was of little use as he fixated on voters' rejection, and for the first time, friends said, Mrs. Clinton glimpsed fragility in the future she had moved to Arkansas to pursue. She worried about saving for Chelsea's college, caring for her aging parents, and even possibly supporting herself should the marriage or their political dreams dissolve. It was up to her to just keep holding things up, said a college friend of Mrs. Clinton. It was up to now, let's pause for a minute and listen very quietly. That's the world's smallest violin. <laughs> it's a Yale lawyer. She has a law degree from Yale. Her husband just lost his job as governor of the state of Arkansas. The youngest guy gov- they can't find a job, you know? I mean they can and by the way, these wealthy friends I don't have any wealthy friends I can go for help. <laughs> you know, if I'm out of work, if I'm a, and I'm a writer, that's a, that's a hard job to you know to make a living. At. This, is, I mean, this is insane. This insane world in which Hillary Clinton, she's just a poor girl from the south, and it leaves it leaves a mark on you. You know, you know, when I was when I was just when I got out of Yale and I we lost the governors and I couldn't have my nanny, it scars you somehow. It does something to your soul. And so yes, yes, I take the money when I can get the money. Yes, I'll take the money. I'll never be hungry again, you know. It's like Scarlett O'Hara standing with the, the potato in her hand, you know. I'll never be hungry again. So this, I mean, this is the world that the mainstream media is living in. And this is what this guy from the New York Times thinks that poor us, you know. We, you know, just yesterday, was it yesterday? I think it was, the Department of Justice released an attack on Baltimore this is this was reported. It's been reported everywhere, but it was reported in the Atlantic Magazine as the horror of the Baltimore Police Department. And this is this Black Lives Matter garbage about how. Well, what do you think this is? You know, this is this is a um, retribution for the fact that the prosecutor in Baltimore couldn't get any any convictions on this Freddie Gray case, where the kid died in the back of the of the uh, paddy wagon, basically, and so now. the the Obama administration is striking back by saying Baltimore is a bigoted thing. And listen to the things they they say, you know. They'll say, like, from 2010 to 2014, Baltimore Police Department officers in the Western and Central District recorded more than 111,000 stops, roughly 44% of the total stops for which officers recorded a district location, yet these are the two least populated police districts in Baltimore with a combined population. They're basically saying that blacks were getting stopped more. I mean first of all 66% of 66 maybe 62% over 60% of Baltimore is black and so what they're saying is you know this this Obama refrain is that blacks are getting arrested more than whites they're getting stopped more than whites without ever taking into account the vast vast disparity in black crime these are the kinds of things that are being sold to us and we're constantly we're constantly on the defensive trying to sell a little bit of the truth and if we react overreact sometimes you know it it, it does if we overreact, sometimes it takes away from our credibility. But everything they say is untrue. The, the entire world that they present to us is untrue, except for one thing, Donald Trump. Donald Trump is, keeps doing the things that they say Donald Trump does, and he is he's like a real character in a cartoon world. The, the mainstream press is selling you a cartoon world in which Donald Trump, to their great gratitude, the best thing that ever happened to them, to which Donald Trump walks through as a live action figure. All right, we're going to end the week with stuff I like. I've been talking about the way that uh, Christianity informs everything we believe, that people think throughout uh, Western civilization from the 1500s on, people think they've been breaking away from Christianity, but it's just not so. Our minds are so shaped from our tradition and our religion that there is no way for us to think outside it, and I personally think that's a good thing. I think everything good we get comes from that, but there are also... Uh, you know, there's also a price to pay. You can only see what you can see. So we've talked about truth and the uh, and ideas of truth and the ideas of the individual, and yesterday we we're talking about ideas of the flesh. And I just want to leave you with one last idea, which is the idea of joy. You know, Christianity used to produce the greatest art on earth. There's no greater music than Bach. There's no greater painting than Michelangelo or sculpture than Michelangelo's. Uh, there's no greater poetry, I would say, than Shakespeare. Some people say Shakespeare is not a Christian artist. I disagree, but certainly there's no greater poetry than John Milton's Paradise Lost. It's a luminous, luminous book that you can read again and again and again, and it's so beautiful. Christian art now, when you think of the words Christian art, you think like, uh, you know, it's like going to be miracle, little a miracle. You know, I lost my bunny, but Jesus brought it back again. The little girl gets sick, but, you know, Jesus heals her. Everything is great. Everything is happy. This is different than joy. See, Christianity is the only religion I can think of that commands you to rejoice, rejoice evermore. It's the only one that comm- – and the reason is what we – kind of what we talked about yesterday, that if you are living in the spirit instead of in the flesh, there's always reason for joy. But you have to define joy. Joy is not happiness. There's an old Zen story, you know, Zen Buddhism. They have these little parables in Zen. Some of them are called koans, but these are just, this is just a Zen story. It's a story of the Zen master who was murdered – and his student was so disappointed because when he was murdered he screamed and he said Zen must be a fraud because he was afraid of death and he was and he suffered pain and the next Zen master came along and said, no, you misunderstand. Zen is not supposed to take away your emotions. It's supposed to give you the right to experience them more deeply, more fully, what Christianity calls life in abundance. So joy is not an absence of grief. It's not an absence of unhappiness. It's not an absence of fear. It is the intensity of life that lets you know that you are living another story even as you live this story. You are living the story of the spirit even as you suffer in the flesh. And that's true of countries too. Just like bodies, countries come and they live and they thrive and they die. Same thing happens to bodies. They live, they grow, they thrive, they suffer, they die. These same things happen. But the spirit inside goes on. The spirit of freedom goes on. The spirit of liberty goes on. The spirit of life goes on past this life. And that is how you live in joy. Be- uh, Frederick Schiller, a poet and a playwright, wrote this wonderful ode to joy that uh, Ludwig von Beethoven set to music. The famous ode to joy, and it was it's supposed to be a kind of fla- uh, part of German Romanticism, sort of flashback away from Christianity, back into the pagan myths uh, that the Germans loved so much. But really, this delight in the world is purely, purely Christian, and it's something to remember. It is at the heart of Western culture. This is one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever. Uh, just to give you a little bit of the translation, it's uh, Schiller reaching out to the world in his joy, and he says, "'You millions, I embrace you. This kiss is for all the world. Brothers, above the starry canopy there must dwell a loving Father.'" Do you fall and worship you, millions? World, do you know your Creator? Seek Him in the heavens. Above the stars must He dwell. I give you this to take you through the Clavenless weekend. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. For those of you who survive, we'll be here again on Monday. Here is Ludwig van Beethoven's Ode to Joy.